0: Turn with me to Romans chapter 3. I'm not going to keep you long tonight, and I promise I won't. Promise. My notes are usually 10 pages long, they're only five. (laughs) But Romans chapter 3, verse 9, and then immediately from there, we're going to go to John chapter 3, verse 14. Have that bookmarked if you're able. Romans 3 9 what then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. And Paul has just made his case for this very fact in the previous verses and chapters, that both Jew and Greek are They are guilty and found under sin. Verse 10, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an empty tomb. With their tongues, they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness, their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, last two verses. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped. And all the world may be become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. The law had many advantages, but one function of the law was so that every man could find themselves lacking in proper righteousness to meet the requirements of this holy righteous law, and anyone who stands under the scrutiny of the law, which represents the character of God, every single person is found wanting and having fallen short of the glory of God. The purpose of the law? Yes, many purposes. One of them was so that every single person would realize, I am guilty before a holy God. Go to John chapter 3. So that that is the sentence imposed upon all of humanity. John chapter 3, verse 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world and men have loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil." For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be clearly seen, that they have been done in God. The title here tonight is God's Pursuit of Man. God's Pursuit of Man. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you. For your wonderful word, which is living and active and is able to bring life to us here tonight. Bring life into every single one of these individuals' lives, my life included. Help us to understand your great love for us here tonight. Help us to understand that we have no strength in ourselves to save ourselves. We have no ability to walk in power and strength except what you provide to us, God. And you fir- have first made a move towards us and loving us and sending us your Son. Help us to respond in kind and to step out in faith and and to receive what you have for us in our lives and here tonight. In Jesus' name I pray, amen and amen. So all of us know that our lives in Christ are not ones to be stagnant. One of the worst places you can be as a Christian is to be in a stagnant state because that state precedes A place of regression we all know we all know we can we can neglect salvation we can drift away from the faith and we know that we can become hardened and stagnated and fall into a rut which will immediately be followed by what regression regression and all of us I think have experienced a time in our lives where there was some coldness there and we needed some revitalization we needed some refreshing in our lives maybe some backsliding and sin we've allowed into our lives And that should not be the normal Christian life, but the fact of the matter is that happens to people as Christians, and we should always be diligent. We should always be pursuing the Lord. We should always be actively pursuing the Lord because we have a foe, the devil. We have our flesh. We have the world. We have so much fighting against us, don't we? Do you ever feel like it's just you fighting against the world? and you have no power in yourself, and you're like, how, how can I meet the need at hand? How can I overcome? You feel so hopeless for, you, for, the, for the sin around you and the, your flesh and the world around you, and the things that you face. But the fact of the matter is, there is a certain responsibility on all of our part, isn't there, to pursue the Lord, to, to, to remain steadfast, to keep our eyes on God, to keep our hands on the plow, and to pursue the Lord and and Paul in, implores Timothy to do this very thing in 2 Timothy 2:22 he says he says flee also youthful, youthful lust but pursue righteousness faith love peace with those who are call, with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart Hebrews 12:14 also says pursue peace with all people and holiness we're to pursue God We're to pursue all things that are in accord with his nature, to pursue faithfulness and love and all things that are right and righteous and of his word. We have a responsibility to pursue God. And that word pursue, it just simply means to seek after eagerly, to earnestly endeavor to acquire. That should be our attitude as Christians. But that is not my point here today. And I'm going to draw that out here in a moment. But Tozer adds to this thought of the person pursuing God. In fact, the name of one of his most famous books is called The Pursuit of God. And here's what Tozer writes. For it is not mere words that nourish the soul, but God himself. And unless and until the hearers find God in personal experience, they are not the better for having heard the truth. The Bible is not an end in itself, but a means to bring men to an intimate and satisfying knowledge of God, that they may enter into him, that they may delight in his presence, may taste and know the inner sweetness of the very God himself in the core and center of their hearts. The primary subject of this book, us pursuing God, he says that, but he adds this. But he goes on to also say Christian theology teaches the doctrine of pervenient grace which briefly stated means this that before a man can seek God before you can pursue God God must first have sought the man. On the next page Tozer says this. Religion so far as it is genuine is in essence the response of created personalities to the creating personality, which is God. I want to encourage you here today, remind you of the fact and, and allow you to be comforted by the fact that before you love God, He first loved you. We can only love, and we do love God right now, and we do pursue and seek Him because I'm so thankful that He first loved me, He first sought me out, He first pursued me. I cannot pursue God unless He has first made the first move to pursue me. It is not me groping in the dark, hoping I might find someone who is God of this universe. He has made every effort to make himself known, not in a broad, general sense, but in a very personal and intimate sense. A personal relationship. We love him because he first loved us. And we know and we see For we read in Romans chapter 3 that no one is righteous, no one does good. We all like sheep have gone astray. We naturally hate God, don't we? And the law says all of you are guilty and the wrath of God abides upon you. No one is seeking after God. And even without the law of God, no one even knew the revealed nature of God. They didn't know who the God of this universe was until God gave the law and mediated it through Moses to his people. And and. No one seeks God. No one knows God. Nobody can reach God. No one can be righteous enough to stand before God and say, okay, will you accept me? The law found you guilty, and it said that all of you are unrighteous and you do not seek God. But we read in John chapter 3, we read that Jesus had to be lifted up as a serpent in the wilderness, and for God so loved the world that he gave his Son. God made the first move. He did not ask you to do anything first. God first, because he loves you, he sent his son. He has done everything possible on his part, has taken the first initiating act so that he can bring you into relationship with him. I'm glad I don't serve a God who asked me to pursue him and desire him when he himself has not desired and pursued me. That's not the God we serve. I do not serve a God who says do this and do that and desire and and live in conformity to my will and nature who is not first sought after and sought and and pursued my heart and my affections and my very life. The only basis for you to live in righteousness and seek the Lord is because He has sought out relationship with you. He loves you. He desires you you. As a result of the Enlightenment of the 17th century, it was a period of time, it's also called the Age of Reason, where there were a lot of uh, advancements in thinking and philosophical thinking and, and thought. And, and there, there was a particular view in theology and, and philosophy that came up out of the Enlightenment, which was called deism. And it was the thought or the belief and the existence of a supreme being, okay, on the basis of using knowledge and reason to see that there is created things in this world, the universe is so big, there has to be a created being. But there was a great, there was a great emphasis placed on reason and intellect based upon viewing creation, but there was less in- emphasis placed on revelation, that is individual revelation of this God who wants to make himself known to you intimately, individually. And they rejected this thought that yes, there is a supreme being, not exactly sure who it is. It's obvious that there is an intelligent designer behind all of these things we see, but we do not believe that he is actively a part of people's lives and wants to make himself known or reveal himself to that creation. But that's not the God we serve, is it? It's not some sky uh, fairy who has created things and then left us just to waller in our own misery. He has chosen to make himself known. Listen, God did not set the world in motion. He didn't give you commands to obey. He didn't uh, warn us of temptation, only to leave you to fend for yourself. God does not give you his heart. He doesn't give you his laws. He doesn't say, do this and do that, and walk away and say, fend for yourself. As if he's over in the shadows just sitting there watch you, you know, flailing in the deep end of the pool saying, hope you can help yourself because I'm not going to intervene in your life. That's not the God we serve, is it? He's one who has first sought Us as a loving father making himself known wants to involve himself in every facet of your life. The basis of your pursuit of God, which you must have in your life right now, remember it's based upon God has first sought you, and He pursues you this very moment. He seeks your life, He seeks greater influence in your life. He seeks to gain greater glory from your life. He seeks to bring bring greater benefit into your life this very moment. He's seeking you right now. He pursues us continuously. Joni Erickson Tata writes in her book called Glorious Intruder. Uh, Joni Erickson Tata, she is a, a paraplegic. She's She's paralyzed from the neck down. She jumped into a shallow pond, broke her neck, and she's paralyzed from the neck down. She's written many wonderful books, and she speaks on on many occasions. But she wrote this, Our God is not patiently standing by and waiting for us to offer love. He is actively and vigorously pursuing us. He is the father running down the road to embrace the prodigal son even before the boy can speak his act of contrition. He is the mad farmer showering a full day's wage on men who hadn't even worked. He is Jesus forgiving the sinful woman even before she spoke her sorrow. He is the king lavishing a banquet on beggars. These are all symbols of a God whose love for us Is so active, so strong, that by human standards, he would be at least said to be mad. The degree of his proactiveness in pursuing us, lavishing blessing upon us, and desiring us looks crazy when you compare it to human standards. Would you agree? When you think about the mercy and grace of God lavished upon your life, his forgiveness, his blessing in your life, we don't deserve a thing. We don't deserve a thing. The nature of God is so far removed from our own nature. So far removed. The unbelieving world, the skeptical world, they want to emphasize what they believe is the unfairness of God. How could an all-loving God send people to hell? How could an all-loving God allow suffering? How could an all-loving God allow evil? How could an all-loving God of the Old Testament exhibit such judgment which seems so harsh? And, and we know the answers to those things. We do. But they so miss the absurdity when it comes to human standards of the amount of, of mercy and grace he lavishes on people who don't deserve a thing. Because we all like sheep have gone astray and we hate God naturally. What is so absurd and hard to comprehend is not God's judgment because that's deserved, but it's his mercy and grace and love upon such a rebellious people. That's what we should emphasize. That while yet I was a sinner, God loved me and died for me. He pursued me even while I was running in the opposite direction. And in fact, we see this madness of God, the absurdity of God throughout the entire Word of God, don't we? We see his pursuit of us. We see his pursuit of all of humanity through the entire story of the Bible. When Adam and Eve, when they failed, when they disobeyed God, they took the fruit, what did they do? They immediately hid from God, didn't they? They made, uh, they fashioned uh, clothing for themselves, of fig leaves, and they hid in the bushes. And what did God do? Did he ignore them? Did he, admit, did he immediately excommunicate them and shun them and turn his back on them? He knew exactly what was going to happen. He knew what happened, and yet he still walked into that garden and what was the first thing he said, Adam, where are you? Adam, where are you? And of course, he knew where Adam was. And the question was for Adam, where am I? I'm here in this place of hiding. And God, yet in their disobedient state, and yes, there was was adequate consequences for what they did, God still went in the direction of disobedience and sin and still made a way for redemption for you and I in that very moment. And he fashioned animal skins for them. and He set them on their way. Yes, there was consequences for sin. But even in that very moment, Adam, where are you? Adam, where are you? He didn't destroy them. And yes, sin had its effects upon their life. But he made every effort to provide for them a means of redemption, which eventually came to pass through the person of Jesus Christ. God is not content to leave us naked in our shame as he was with Adam and Eve. But he comes searching for us, asking, where are you in relation to me? When Cain became um, jealous of his brother Abel, he allowed bitterness to come into his heart and hatred to come into his heart. Before he murdered his brother, the first murder we see in human history, God was pursuing Cain. He went to Cain and he said, sin is crouching at the door, Cain. You must overcome it. Cain, I know what's in your life. I know what's in your heart. I'm going to deal with you. I'm pursuing you right now. Don't do this. And yet he ignored it. But all the while, God was pursuing him. We see the children of Israel and the prophets in Deuteronomy 7, 7, we see how that the, it says, The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any other people. For you were the least of all people, but because the Lord loves you, and because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage, from the hand of Pharaoh, King of Egypt. The Lord pursued Abraham. He pursued his descendants. He delivered them from Egypt, not because they were anything great, but because he had set his seal of love and a covenant he had made with those people. And then he continuously sent his prophets, didn't he? Continuously sent his prophets to call people to repentance. He was continually pursuing the hearts of the people that he loved so much. He loved them so much, and he sent these prophets to call them back to repentance, to call them back into relationship with God over and over and over and over again. And If they were to respond to this call of repentance, there wouldn't be judgment. There wouldn't be consequences. And yet, because there has to be consequences for sin, he allowed judgment to come upon the people of Israel. But he continuously made every effort to reach out to them through the prophets, through his dealing with the people. Even while God was pursuing Jonah, he was pursuing an unrighteous, heathen, pagan city of Nineveh. And while Jonah was running away from God, God was pursuing Jonah. We know the story of Jonah. And by pursuing Jonah, he's pursuing a pagan people, Nineveh, so that they might be saved. We look at the life of Paul, that while he is, which his name was Saul at this time, while he is pursuing and seeking out Christians to throw them in jail, God pursues him and reveals himself on the road to Damascus and said, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goats. That is, when I pursue you, you cannot reject me. A goad is a, is a stick with a point at the end that a shepherd or a farmer would use to, to prod along some cattle or a sheep or whatever. And you can kick against it all you want, but it's not going to help. Saul, you're kicking against me, and you're trying to reject me, and you're pursuing Christians who you think are your enemy, but I'm pursuing you right now. And he saves him there on that, that Damascus road. And he becomes the greatest missionary and evangelist that we know of in human history. But God supremely, and let me bring it down to, to, really, to, to the real nitty-gritty, the meat of this. But God supremely, he pursued us, he sp- pursued humanity. He sought us out supremely through his son. For God so loved that he gave his son his only begotten, his only one and unique son. It is through the cross of Jesus Christ that he pursues all of humanity, all of humanity. When we see Jesus save Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus who was up in the trees, this tax collector, he's done so many things wrong. And he says, Zacchaeus, I want to eat with you today. I'm going to be in your house. And in the presence of Jesus, of the Messiah, Zacchaeus repents and says, I'm going to give back all that I've stolen and repay it all the more. And and Jesus said, this day salvation has come to this household. He's a true son of Abraham. And you know how Jesus ends that whole dialogue? For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Jesus, we just read in John chapter 3, Jesus did not come to condemn the world, but to save it. The world is already condemned. John 3 taught us the world is already condemned because we have all rejected God. We love darkness more than light. We've all gone astray, like we read in Romans chapter 3. We've all gone astray. No man seeks after God. And so the Son of Man, he comes, Jesus comes, not to condemn Not to cast out into outer darkness, but he comes to seek so that he might save. He comes to seek so that he might save. He comes to seek not so he can condemn. He came to die on a cross to seek the hearts of men and to restore relationship with every single one of us. This is exemplified in the parable of the lost sheep. It's exemplified in the parable of the lost coin that God ardently and fervently and passionately what would seem absurd and madness by human standards, he pursues people who hate him through the cross that he died upon. And just as they're about to crucify him, Jesus comes upon the hill and looks down upon Jerusalem. And what does Jesus say? Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. I've preached to you. I've sought you. I'm, I'm the fulfillment of all things. I'm the prophet of prophets. I'm the priest of priests. I'm the king of kings. It is me you've been looking for. Oh, Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to condemn you? No, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. You weren't willing. You weren't willing. I close with this. When I was nine years old, we took a ski trip to Telluride, Colorado. My mom worked for a wealthy individual. He had a home in Telluride, Colorado. My family went and another family went. I was in third grade, nine years old. And we go skiing there at this resort town, beautiful resort town. A lot of rich people go there and we were there. And we were skiing down a slope. My mom was ahead of me. And though I'm from Texas, I learned it pretty quickly. But I wasn't an expert, and we're going down this hill, and my mom kind of stops by the edge of the slope, the edge of the skiing lane. And a lot of these skiing lanes or, or slopes that you take, they're cut through the mount, a mountain. And on the edge of this skiing lane, a lot of times it's just kind of a drop-off or, or a very steep, steep Uh, incline that goes way down and you don't want to get anywhere near that well my mom kind of stopped close to the edge of the skiing lane the trail and I go and I stop next to her and then I start sliding backwards and I go backwards down the side of this trail and it's steep very steep and it's littered with trees And I fall probably 20 feet down, and I get kind of stopped on some snow gathered around the base of a tree. But there's just tons of trees. And you could very easily, if you're going fast enough, if you went off the side, you could just smash into a tree, be killed. I mean, it's very, very dangerous if you just kept going down. The snow was really fluffy and a lot of snow, so I kind of stopped at the base of a tree about 20 feet down. And my mom told me that she started screaming as loud as she could, Stephen, Stephen! I couldn't hear her. I couldn't hear her. I, was, I know I was just 20 feet down, but I couldn't hear anything she was saying. And I was stuck. And there is no way she or my dad are gonna go down there. It is too dangerous for them to traverse down this steep incline, littered with trees, because they might fall. They might slide down. And so they call ski patrol. Call ski patrol. And I'm sitting there, I'm just kind of not trying to, I don't want to move, I don't want to fall down any further, I'm just kind of paralyzed, like, oh my goodness, what, what, what's going on? And a ski patrolman shows up, and it's this guy with long, I remember his look, he had sunglasses on, a little toboggan, he's got a red jacket, he's got sandy blonde, kind of long blondy hair, he looks kind of like he's like, he's, he's like a ski bum, you know, like a, he's like he's from California, but he was a ski patrolman. And he comes down, he's got this red jacket. And, and for those who are, who are medics or in patrol, what, are they, what do they have, what insignia do they have on the back of their jacket? They got a cross. And this guy comes and he looks down at me. The guy keeps his skis on and he just jumps down, like no big deal, you remember that? And they're all like, how did he just do that? He kept his skis on, he like nothing, just hopped down the steep incline, came under me, he said, okay, you're going to, he took my skis off, he said, you're going to grab your skis, you're going to put them in front of you, I'm going to hold you up from behind and push you up, and you're going to dig your skis into the side of this incline as you work your way up, and I'm going to push from behind. And that's exactly what we did. And after a matter of moments, I'm at the top, and my mother's kissing me. But isn't this a picture of who we are before we come to Christ. We are lost. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. We're absolutely helpless. Absolutely helpless. And we're so low down looking up where we want to be, that is in the presence of God, where we have descended from our parents, Adam and Eve, by their sin, and we have fallen so far that no person, no institution of this world can save us and help us. But there's a man who shows up on the scene. There's a man who comes down from above because you cannot reach him. So he came down to us and that is Jesus Christ. And he comes down to us and he saves us by the cross. He saves us by dying in our place. He saves us by receiving the wrath of God that we actually receive. Romans chapter 5, verse 6, For when we were still without strength, that is when we were helpless, in due time Christ died from for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us. He primarily demonstrates his love towards us by this. And that while you were still a sinner, Christ died for us. This is madness. This is absurd. None of us are righteous. And yet he still loved us and died for us. How much more then, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Christ came down to us in our place of helplessness, in our place of depravity, in our place of wickedness, in our place of rebellion, And he did not come down to condemn. You were already condemned. You condemned yourself. You were in a place of wrath that you brought upon yourself. You made yourself an enemy of God. But Jesus came down to restore relationships so that you could be a friend of God, so that you could be a child of God, so that you could be a beneficiary of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. He comes down and he lifts you up and he allows you to be presented in the very presence of God by covering you with his blood, which makes you white as snow. And you're restored back to relationship with Christ, not because you did anything, not because you tried so hard, not because you loved him first or because you pursued truth and righteousness. He pursued you first. And so here's the application, here's the question, and a call to action. Will we, on a daily basis, respond to his pursuit by pursuing him? When I I got married, well, before I got married, I pursued Kimberly. Most men pursue the woman. Sometimes the women pursue the men. She did kind of pursue me, though, too. But whatever the case may be, you pursue that girl, you want to marry her. And you do everything to marry that girl, to secure this marriage with this person you love. Do you stop pursuing when you get married? No. The pursuit should intensify all the more. You pursue your wife's heart. You pursue your husband's heart. Just because you're married doesn't mean everything just stops. All the effort you put into being married to that person, to to being with that person, to being engaged and to getting married and, 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 and to have a life together, you continue to pursue one another. And so God continues to pursue us. He's placed his spirit within us as children of God. And the Holy Spirit is there to always lead and to direct us and guide us. And we had a whole series on the person of the Holy Spirit and his work in our lives. And that's God's activity so that we might be pleasing to him. We may live in righteousness because he's actively pursuing us this very moment. He's trying to lead us into truth. Trying to prod us and guide us and correct us instruct us and encourage us. The Holy Spirit is actively always doing that. But he wants our response on an active basis. On a continual basis. He wants a response from us. And so that is the question for us. Do we respond? Will we respond? You've responded to that when you became a Christian. But that pursuit of God on the basis of him first pursuing you, let that increase in your life. Respond to him seeking you continuously. Respond by loving him in return, by being devoted to him in return, by laying your life down for him in return for him laying his life down for you. Respond to this absurd madness of God's love. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, the first question it asks, what is the chief end of men? And the response is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And that really is the function of your life and what you're called to. You're to glorify God and to enjoy Him as a personal God you have relationship with and intimacy with. Let me end right here with this last quotation from Joni Erickson Tata from the same book, Glorious Intruder. In a day when it's fashionable to appear cool, bored, uncaring, and detached, we can't afford to doubt the enthusiastic, all-encompassing love of God. His compelling love surrounds us every minute. He's in front of us, behind us, relentlessly, pouring his love into our lives. What madness! What a passion for our souls. How can we be half hearted toward our circumstances, towards others, when He loves us so? May we be found running down the trail to forgive those who offend us. May we shower our abundance on those who don't deserve it. May we embrace the sinner before he even speaks his sorrow. And may we pursue our God with even a fraction of the energy with which he pursues us. May we accept the love God wants so much to give us which is but a fraction of any human love. May we stop running from and fighting God, acting as if we were God. Invite him to love you and experience a miracle. Amen. Would you stand up with me?